Hello and welcome to the Chinese Revolutions podcast, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. A, we're looking at modern Chinese history through the frame of revolutionary movements starting from about 1839. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast for me is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. So just the usual announcement starting out here. I'm looking to try to get up to 100 page subscribers to start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology, zooming in on special interest items. Uh, you can join the Substack for greater connection with the podcast. You'll get behind the scenes stories, stories from my time in China. For, um, and always please rate and review me on all platforms. Um, Apple Podcasts, Google, I'm not, uh, Podbean is my host. Anyway, um, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, chineserevolutions.substack.com, and also please do send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Um, trying to build more of a community. Uh, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Uh, you can find that on the website, ChineseRevolutions.com. This episode, we are getting into, uh, we're going to get into a handful of episodes about the opium trade in China, Qing efforts to suppress it, the British response to Qing efforts to suppress it, the First Opium War, 1839 to 1842. Uh, the, you know, I, I discovered a whole new episode as I was doing, as I was preparing this episode. So that's part of where I'm not entirely sure where to draw the lines. So we'll jump into it today and we'll see what we find. Um, the focus today is going to be on a quality no, the, the, the focus on these episodes is going to be a quality but short treatment of British involvement in China, and we're looking at where the Qing political homeostasis was disrupted, allowing for the Taiping Rebellion to emerge. That's where next week's episode is going to be particularly important, uh, because we're going to be looking at the uh, the discussion by Confucian scholars um by contemporary Chinese scholars about the value of foreign trade in China, what China ought to do about it. So the critical thing is where China loses control of China. That's when revolution becomes possible. So the uh, today we're drawing heavily upon Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. So here we go about the opium trade into China, and the beginning of Chinese attempts to suppress it. So if we go back to the very beginning, opium was a well-established luxury drug in China. It's drugs. And the, the main problem is where scale really starts to take off. It had been used for medicinal purposes for a long, long time, was cultivated in China for that purpose. Parts of the plant were eaten as a delicacy, so it's far from being just, you know, drugs. 
well, in, in America, we're having problems with fentanyl right now. Well, fentanyl is a legitimate medicinal drug, but it's the abuse. So in 1719, the uh, sequel to Robinson Crusoe, The Farther Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, opium is mentioned as a uh, worthwhile trade product to take to China. In 1733, 60 years before the McCartney mission we talked about last time, the East India Company officially forbade its official captains from carrying opium to China. The people who did most of the trade were the country traders. The East, the East India Company owned the monopoly between Britain and the East, but these company traders, no, country traders, they could go east to east. They could take things from Indonesia to China to India to... They, 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 they could do whatever they wanted and then just take the money home to Britain. And the thing with the opium trade being illegal anyway, you could say it showed up on the police radar rather than the official balance of trade radar for China. India was a, for the East India Company, India was a colonial enterprise that was pretty much dragging down its profits. They just through a series of wars, they basically wound up owning India. And so it wasn't so much trading and profiting anymore. It was them seeing what value they could extract from India. But when you are the government, you have to pay government costs. Costs aren't even prices. They're just, this is what it costs. Um, and if, you know, if a war comes up, if a big police thing comes up, that's what it costs. What's the price? Whatever it costs. And so the trade with China was where the money was. On the one hand, that's where the East India Company was doing what it was founded to do, what it was good at, what it was supposed to be good at, and also getting silver out of China was where any income was going to be coming from for the East India Company. So the problem wasn't really balance of trade between Britain and China as such. It was that the East India Company and British traders needed to be making profit from trade with China. Well, the British trading establishment needed to be making profit anyway. And so where the opium war starts is where pressure gets laid on where profits are happening. The East India Company did not directly itself engage in the opium trade, which is kind of an interesting note. The legitimate trade with China was way, way too valuable to risk. You know, tea, silk, porcelain, okay, the money legitimately made that way, that was, there, there was no way they were going to risk that. But they needed more income, and country traders needed opium, so the East India Company got in on the supply side. So the East India Company in India openly and officially grew and packaged opium for export and sold it to country traders. The East India Company in Canton, in South China, wasn't at all connected with the opium production in India. 
and Stephen Platt, you know, in Imperial Twilight, uh, tells the story of an EIC official with 20 years' experience in Canton, and he reported in 1830 that he hadn't even seen a chest of opium in his life. So lying to government investigative committees is a very old job. You know, so was that guy lying, or was that absolutely true? Well, the fact of the matter is, one part of this multinational corporation was, you know, running profits that the other branch didn't, you know, didn't have any official connection to. One of the, so let's look at how the opium trade worked. Foreign traders came up in ships just outside jurisdictional lines outside Canton, Guangzhou. Like, there was this one island where Chinese naval ships would be on one side of the island and the opium traders would be on the other side of the island. Well, the, the, the navy ships would only come around to, you know, get their share of the bribes from time to time. That's what it says. That's what Stephen Platt uh, uh, says they'd you know so they the uh, the foreigners would go into canton to meet up with the chinese buyers and you know their ships would be empty of opium for inspection and in the port and chinese traders would take the opium you know like like they would take their ships out to where the foreigners would have their ships just outside chinese jurisdictional lines and they'd take the opium and take charge of distribution into the interior so you can mark a parallel in the slave trade that Europeans were running out of Africa. African chiefs were the ones who were actually doing the slave raids and bringing them to the Europeans on the coast. Um, it actually wasn't until the Europeans improved their tropical medicine that they were able to permanently station large forces in the tropics. You know, even then, it was still rough. Uh, 1820, uh, quinine was discovered, uh, that being the first anti-malarial medication that they, that was able to be, uh, industrially extracted and put in use. Um, it wasn't until 1857 that the, uh, that, that the British directly ruled India and the British Parliament abolished slavery in 1833. So this is about the same time, uh, in in the, like the, in the historical neighborhood, where the Opium War is going to be 1839, where you know where selling drugs kind of gets ahead of uh, treating human beings as property, is well, you know you 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 can't whip opium too much like the you know, theoretically, it's a consenting adult who's destroying his or her own life. So, like, it's kind of at a moral remove, and so the opium trade did continue. We'll we'll look at that sometime later, but the... Uh, uh, so it would be Chinese traders who would take it in to actually sell it distributed. Uh, somewhere along the way, money changed hands. I didn't get that. I don't know if they did that out, you know, on the ships out in the, 
you know, out off the coast or if that was in Canton. Um, so let's look at the beginning of the suppression of the opium trade. Okay, mostly, mentally bookmark 1839 as the hard line that we're approaching. Okay, in 1729, the Yongzheng Emperor uh, banned the use, sale, or transport of opium, but this wasn't really enforced. In the 1810s, like 80 years later, the Jiaqing Emperor tried to do something about it again. Uh, like in 1810, uh, a smuggler was caught with six containers of opium trying to come into Beijing, and the Jiaqing Emperor wrote, Opium has a most intense effect. Those who smoke it can suddenly become excited and capable of doing whatever they want without restraint. Before long, it will steal their life and kill them. And this is a, a quote uh, reported by Stephen Platt in Imperial Twilight. Um, in 1813, he lamented that the spread in the elite was, e was even more than he was aware of. And then we'll see where, where opium consumption really takes off in China. Uh, rampant bribery was one of the major problems working against Qing attempts to shut down the drug trade. And one thing I realized as I was putting this together, the same corrupt local elites in Canton that would petition the emperor to keep foreign trade focused on Canton must have also been in on the opium trade. So the, like, the, there, there's a, a lot of, okay, that's, that's not something I've proven yet, but it's the, the, um, when, like, when James Flint went to Beijing in the uh, middle of the 1700s, was it 1759? Uh, he was trying to get the emperor to do something about corrupt local officials. Well, local people in Canton wanting to keep making lots and lots of money, that didn't stop. And the people pressuring the emperor, the local special interest groups, to borrow, you know, in the modern phrase, they're the ones who are also, you know, paying off the police, paying off the Chinese Navy, the ones hooking up with distribution networks, uh, so, and this is all going on alongside the the enormous legitimate trade, tea, silk, whatever the Westerners were bringing in. Uh, in the 1820s to 30s, uh, foreigners knew that opium was forbidden in China, but the problem was that there was just such great demand. Now, in the 1820s, that's when you see a huge increase in supply from India and the consumption of opium spread much more to northern China. It wasn't just this thing that the southern Chinese picked up from the northern Chinese. Actually, opium had been known in China for centuries. It, it would come over land. It was being grown in China. But the amount that was coming in really ramped up the confrontation. Um, so in Imperial Twilight, Stephen Platt quotes uh, James Matheson's K 
Canton Register from April 1828, most of our readers know that opium is strictly forbidden by the laws of China. Nevertheless, China is the country where the principal portion of the Indian drug is consumed, together with a large quantity of what is produced in Turkey. So it was illegal from the top, but it was demand. But it was market demand that kept bringing it in. So what do they do? Now, just to let you know, the British did show extensive moral awareness of the dilemma. So it's like, you know, we know that this is bad for the Chinese consuming it, but we're making buckets and buckets of money. And, you know, whether or not it was the same person having these realizations, um, the, the, the British establishment was aware of this. And, you know, so while they were banning slavery in 1833, they were also having their qualms about all the money being made on selling drugs to China. You know, they, they, they knew what opium was. So you can read Imperial Twilight if you want to get into that. This, that isn't the focus of this podcast. Uh, so it's not just the British monolithically forcing something down the throats of, of the Chinese um, there's, there's a, this story is very, very complicated. Um, in 1820, the next emperor, the Daoguang emperor, he had been an opium smoker and kind of with the force of somebody who's been there, you know, and so trying to keep other people from going there, he took a hard line against opium. You know, a line quoted from him is, he called it a great harm to the customs and morals of the people. He targeted corrupt officials um, like one of the one of the things that might have happened that would really alarm him would was opium addicted civil service exam takers at the at the Beijing level. Like these were people who had gone through a lot of work. They were dying of op- of withdrawals from opium addiction at, in in Beijing during the exams. That that's like like these are the these are the people who are supposed to maybe be the next generation of top level officials, and they're dying of drug of uh, drug withdrawals. Um, it, consumption was very popular with popular with the elites. Lower class people made good money trading it. Uh, one of the reason one one a partial reason for the popularity of opium was that. Western products were very popular in China in the 1820s. Furs, clocks, glass, cotton textiles, other stuff from the Canton import trade. So the old story that you might have heard in high school about China saying, we don't need your stuff, that it was standard, you know, for for domestic consumption uh, messaging by the emperor that you know, we're so cool, we don't need any of your you know, any of your foreign stuff while he's filling out an order form for another truckload of clocks. Um, you know, so you could kind of copy-paste your understanding of the drug trade in the Americas for what it was like in China. Lots of violence at the smuggling and distribution levels. Maybe, maybe not so much violence at the top deal-making levels, but it is really in the smuggling and the distribution where... Um, you know, f- fighting with the police, um, you know, fighting for turf, 
uh, local kingpins would provide for local welfare. Um, you see that with Mexican cartels. Local loyalties uh, protected people in the trade. The inspector from the other side of the, em- the empire is coming to round up whoever is in the opium trade. Well, the well, that's my uncle, that's my brother, that's my father, that's my son, that's my... So I'm, you know, I, I'm going to have him jump over the fence and tell the tell the police that he went the other way. Um, you know, in the 1820s, conservative scholars were increasingly writing about against the opium trade. One particular guy, Bao Shi Chun, a uh, guy we could come back to like with his own whole episode. He rose in the Confucian hierarchy, but he didn't pass the Beijing exam, so he tried like 13 times. Okay, 13 times 3, that's 39 years he was trying to pass the highest level exams. Um, but he expanded his studies to other things like agriculture and war. Um, where, I, yeah, this when I was looking into this part, I was discovering, yeah, this this debate is so important that I'm coming back to it next week for its own whole episode, and it's right out of Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. So if you want to jump in on it yourself, read Imperial Twilight. So the, the, the debate was about this about strictness versus flexibility and moderation in dealing with the opium problem. The kind of the, the conclusion that we're coming here we're coming to here for Chinese revolutions, the project of this podcast, is that whatever the government is going to do, the one thing the government cannot do is lose power and lose sovereignty. In 1816, 1817, uh, there was the Amherst expedition to China. They tried again to make direct diplomatic re- uh, connections with Beijing, but the the problem was the Beijing establishment wanted a sign of submissiveness to China rather than all right, state talking to state. That. So then, even later, when a uh, you know special official appointed by the Chinese emperor goes to suppress the opium trade, you know the one that you might have heard about in AP World History or part of the re- like they 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 sent a letter to Queen Victoria, like trying to appeal on moral grounds uh, about the 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 wrongness of the trade. But the problem was that there wasn't an official state-to-state, monarch-to-monarch diplomatic channel where such a um, such a message would would connect. So when you know when you start taking the business the the, the stuff owned by the businessmen, um, that's when the army and the navy get brought in. Um, the external, This externally driven thing is going to be resolved by arms because they couldn't figure out how to officially talk directly. Um, just to give you some idea, there was some other podcast I was listening to, and one of the things about the Chinese and the American reestablishment of the... Of 
diplomatic relations after Nixon's visit to China, uh, the Chinese government was spending foreign currency reserves to pay back American companies that had been dispossessed of their holdings in China after the the 1949 revolution, that that's how important the connection between China and America was, that precious foreign currency reserves would be used to pay down uh, like decades-old losses to American companies. That's how important this business question is to whether you know, whether they're going to bring the Navy around. So next week, we're going, to fo- we're going to zoom in on the discussion by Chinese officials about the opium trade, foreign trade, what to do, because that's going to be really important for some of the later stuff, especially when we get into the Second Opium War and where China starts to make progress in dealing with foreign powers as equal states rather than trying to fit them into its tributary system. Uh, We're going to cover the Opium War briefly, but it's the point at which everything turns, and we're more interested in what's turning than in how badass the Opium War might have been or anything like that. And we're going to do, I have it marked as two, episodes on Protestant missionary work in China as part of the wider context leading up to the Taiping Rebellion, uh, and even some of the foreign engagement with China during the Taiping Rebellion. A lot of that is driven by what everybody believed. Uh, So this has been... Chinese Revolutions with Nathan Bennett. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, go. you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. You can join the substack, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Please send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. And thanks for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>